Welcome to episode four of Worthy Waiting Gold and really looking forward to sharing the story of high jump champion Chris Dodd. At the age of 15, Chris clears the magical two metre barrier and improves rapidly under his coach Matt Horsnell and is jumping over two metres 20 when in 2015 everything goes pear-shaped. Chris is involved in a tragic accident and suffers horrendous injuries. But on the flip side, he's also a hero. He saves his daughter's life. In his own words, he's never been so scared. And it's a terrifying moment for the entire family. He also realises while he's being treated by paramedics that his high jump career is over. We'll step through all of that in the next 30 minutes. But right now, let's get to our feature guest. Chris Dodd, welcome to Worth Their Waiting Gold. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for inviting me in. Yeah, pleasure. And uh, you're the fourth guest so far. So Tracy Stimson, Alex Lee from the Glen, and also a man you know pretty well, Terry Chigwidden, the legendary cameraman, but also the father of Jonathan, who's severely autistic, and also Terry surviving that near-death experience when he was training for an Ironman triathlon. Yeah, yeah, I've known Terry for a long time since I was a, a fairly young boy. So, um, yeah, hearing about that accident was was terrible, but uh, it's good to see that he's, you know, feeling quite good and and he's achieving a lot still in his Ironman. I kind of met you when you were a teenager, so I want to find out about the early life of Chris Dobb before I met you. Tell us about growing up in the Dodd family. Yeah, I was, um, you know, I, I have two sisters, one older, one younger, who were, you know sporty in their own sense as well my dad Peter he was a, a bit of an athlete when he was growing up he was more soccer um, and my mum was a hockey player and I still have that that memory standing in the kitchen I was about I must have been four and um, they said you know what sport do you want to play Chris and I said the one I watch on TV rugby league I think dad was a bit disappointed being a soccer man but um, I started as a, as a rugby league player I just lived and breathed it for my early years Everything about it. I love the training, all the games you got to play. Um, I was always quite fast too. I loved it because I was able to score tries. I just ran around kids. <laughs> I didn't have much skill, I don't think. But, you know, being fast at that, that age, you just run around everyone and score the tries. So, um, yeah, growing up for me, it was, it was sort of rugby league. But, um, yeah, I grew up on the Central Coast. Uh, we moved here from Sydney when I was uh, just four. And so I, I lived in Greenpoint and... Um, I had a pretty good life, like living living on the coast is fantastic, you know, surrounded by beaches and um, it was so quiet then as well, so it was great. So you said your dad's a soccer player, but also he's a fairly massive role model for you with his career. He's ticking a lot of boxes in terms of work ethic, courage, mateship, teamwork. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, dad, dad taught me a lot of good lessons when I was young. He was a firefighter as well, so, you know, it's like all boys you look up to your dad um, I admired him a lot um, he was my role model so you know I always thought how do you fill the shoes that your father sets for you as well you know growing up because you know any question I had he seemed to know the answer to if I had any troubles any problems he was the one who was able to fix it and for me in my sport as well he was the one that was always there he took me to training all the time my mum didn't have a license so dad drove me to every single training session um, he took me to trips, you know, I, I remember him taking me to, to Tasmania for my first nationals. It was just me and him. He'd take me down to Wollongong or up to Newcastle or anywhere in between for any athletics competitions. Um, 
And so, yeah, he was, he was a great source of inspiration for me. He was really supportive. But, he, you know, he taught me valuable lessons as well. One that I can think of off the top of my head, you know, I was about, I reckon, probably 12. And uh, he was taking me to a, a training session at Agcock Park. I was actually training in the same squad as Josh Ross, the 100-metre sprinter. And, um, you know, I was quite young and, and there was obviously these really good athletes. And it was one of those days where all my friends were down at the basketball courts. They were all playing basketball and, you know, I, was, I wanted to go. And Dad was saying, no, mate, you've got training. So, you know, you've made a commitment. And I remember sitting in the car at the end and I was, I was a bit, you know, a bit upset, a bit angry and saying like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I just want to hang out with my friends. And I remember him being quite firm with me and saying, I will support you with whatever decision you make, but whatever decision you make, it has to be 100%. And he said, I'm not going to sit here and drive you to your training sessions and sit here for two hours a couple of times a week if you're not 100% committed to it. So he said, if you want to go play with your friends, go play with your friends, but don't think that you can pick and choose when you're going to train because I'm not going to, make that commitment if you're not that committed as well so you know that was a really important lesson for me I made the decision to stay with the training then but uh, yeah that really set the tone for me I think with my attitude towards sport and towards training you've got to be 100% committed otherwise it's not worth the time and effort. Well I'll tell you it's massive for families in terms of an investment in time isn't it? Huge huge investment and you know that's one of those things where you feel so grateful you don't recognize or realize what your parents do sacrifice for you, I think, when you're a teenager. And it's, you know, it's only when maybe even you have kids of your own, but, uh, yeah, you really do recognise and appreciate the sacrifices they do go through. And it's more than just the time that they take to take you to training and everything like that. It's, it's everything, you know. I can't imagine the sacrifices my parents made to make sure that I had those opportunities. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Hey, I've got to ask, you said your mum doesn't have a licence You've got to tell that story. There's there's not much of a story to it, actually. She just, um, she never got her driver's license. Um, so it's one of those things that was, it was quite normal for us, you know. Mum just doesn't drive. So. What about now? No, still does not have it. Does not, never Pub- had a license in her life. Public transport? Yep, she catches a bus um, and, you know, dad's retired now, so he ferries her around where where he needs to, but um, she's just always managed to get by on, you know, catching a bus where she needs to. So your sister's a a race walker and that's probably around the time of maybe Kerry Juna Saxby? Yeah, it would have been, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Jane Saville. Saville, yeah, that's it. That that heartbreaking moment at the Sydney Olympics. But um, yeah, it was about that that era, I think. Yeah, Yeah. the early 2000s. Hey, just for the record, can I get their names? So both your sisters and your mum and dad? Caitlin and Kelly are my sisters, mum and dad are Peter and Jenny. Okay, so before we talk more about your illustrious track and field career and also that day in 2015, I just want to step through, you become a teacher. So through this period, is there a teacher or teachers that really light a fuse within you as to where you're going to head in the future? Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, I think everyone's got that one or two teachers that really leave a lasting impact. The one off the top of my head that that I really respected was my English teacher in high school. His name was Mark Chapman. He's still teaching on the on the coast. Uh, last I knew he was a deputy at Berkeley Vale, but uh, he, was, um, he was just a really good role model. He was an excellent teacher, always very calm, knew exactly what he was talking about, but just knew how to motivate people as well. And, you know, he was one of those first teachers that really you know 
treated me as a person that wasn't just his student. You know, he, he took an interest in my life outside of school and, you know, he talked to me about things outside of school and, you know, that how you achieve in the HSC isn't the be-all and end-all and, you know, he encouraged me to, um, you know, really chase after my dreams in athletics and he said that, you know, you've got a limited window kind of thing and you should um, make sure that you don't sacrifice those opportunities just because you want to achieve well in the HSC. I had numerous teachers that I could mention on this podcast that had a huge influence on my pathway when you could have been going down the wrong track. Yeah, and and that's I think that's an important thing as well. And and Mark was very good like that. Like you know, I guess as a as a teenage boy, you often look for for males that are a big role models in your life. And he was one of those guys because he did he exuded a, a personality that really you know it showed you what it what a real man was. Um, you know, kind, caring, compassionate, patient. And yeah, it was more than just his role as a teacher. So when I meet you, you're already on a pathway to being an Olympian, a young high jump star. Tell us when high jump first comes on your radar. It's a bit of a funny story, really. Um, I was I was always a decent athlete as a kid growing up, but more a sprinter. Like I was fast, but I wasn't exceptional. I made state the first time, you know, in year six, and that was a massive deal for me. And I don't know if I even got out of the qualifying stages for the 100 metres, but to make it that far, I was so excited. The next year when I got into high school, I just entered into a a hurdles race purely because I wanted to go to Sydney North and you could go straight through to Sydney North (laughs) for that. And I thought, you know, I've done this at at Little Athletics and much to my and everyone else's surprise, I picked up a bronze medal at, at the state championships for the hurdles. And so that really sort of ignited the idea of maybe I should train a little bit more for this. So I continued to sort of train a little bit for hurdles and I managed to get into a bit of long jump as well. And um, that's where I was in my early sort of years. About 13, 14, I got a stress fracture in my foot. So I was in a cast for two months and I couldn't do any athletics. And, and when I you know, had a chat with the surgeon, he said, you can't do any running, jumping, hurdling off, off that foot. So I was, you know, upset about that and I was, I was a bit bored. So at little A's, I could still run, but I couldn't do any jumping. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to switch sides. I'm going to jump off my other leg. So I started jumping off my right leg just so I could join in. And um, I jumped a, a 10 centimetre PB at little A's almost instantly. And I think I jumped 155 or something like that. So I was about 14, I think. So I thought, oh, that's okay. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll just keep jumping on this side. So I sort of just mucked around with it a little bit. And then towards the end of the season, I entered in this competition called the Country Championships. And um, and I did, I jumped off the left side off my right leg and um, I jumped 178 and I tied for first. And um, this man, Matthew Horsnell, came up to me at the end of the competition and he said, I trained that other guy that you jumped against and he's the state champion and you just tied with him. He's like, you live on the Central Coast. How come I've never seen you? And I was like, I don't do high jump. <laughs> And he's like, you need to come down and do some training with me then. So you jump 178 as a 14-year-old? As a 14-year-old, yeah. Um, I think that would have been maybe about January. And I think within two months of training with Matt, I entered into, it was called the Australian Youth Championships at that time. It was separate from the all schools, um, but it was based, It was a nationals. And I jumped one, 187, I think, or 188 which was, I think at the start of the season, my PB was 155. And so it was a huge improvement and I got the gold medal. So you've improved over 30 centimetres in one year. 
Just or in a couple of months. Just from switching legs. <laughs> yeah. I jumped off the right leg from then on. Hey, you know that Steve Allen was a high school high jump star? Yeah, but I've heard. I've heard. Had, had a record once upon a time. <laughs> never got anywhere near 188. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, how tall are you? So I am, I am 188. I'm probably about one. I think I'm 187 now. I've dropped a centimetre <laughs> um, since the accident, funnily enough. But um, probably at that time, I was about 185, 186. Um, I was very tall, very skinny at that age. I don't think I've grown much since I was about 14, 15. But uh, yeah, by the time I was, I only started jumping when I was 14. And by the end of the year, I was 188, I think was my PB. So I think I heard once that scientifically, every person should be able to jump their own height. Is that correct? Oh, I haven't heard that theory, but um, I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a, more than 50% of people that could. <laughs> It'd be a tr- tricky one. Uh, the reason I ask it is because in the end, you're jumping around about 40 centimetres above your own height. Yeah, yeah, it's about that, I think. Which is staggering. Yeah, when you when you look at it like that, you know, um, it is impressive. But uh, I've always said this, when you're high jumping, and I, I'm sure Nicola would have said the same thing, you're not looking at the bar thinking it's high. Um, you're looking at the bar thinking, I can jump over you. But uh, yeah, it blew me away whenever I would come back after a break and we'd put the bar up for a, the first jump session. You know, and you might put it at 205 or, or something like that, and it looks monstrous. But then by the end of the season, you know, your starting height for a competition is that and you're looking at it going, yeah, this is easy. You mentioned Matt Horsnell. So the show's worth their weight in gold. Now that's a guy who is just phenomenal, isn't he? I don't have enough adjectives to describe how amazing Matthew Horsnell is. He is a true inspiration. He's probably one of the greatest men I've ever come across in my life. When I speak about role models, you know, he's the first person that comes to mind. I've never met anyone with the patience, with the kindness, uh, the generosity um, that he has, but just his approach to everything, you know, the way he approaches coaching, his philosophies are just so far ahead of everyone else's, in my opinion. He is more than happy to share everything he knows with everyone else. Um, you know, first coming up as, a, as an athlete, it was amazing for me to discover how many people kept what they knew as a closely guarded secret because they didn't want others to succeed. And Matt was co- the complete opposite. He would talk to anyone. If he was sitting next to someone in the stadium, he would strike up a conversation and he would pick their brains if he thought they had anything of value. Um, and he would be more than happy to do the, the opposite and he would share everything he knows with anyone. Yeah, yeah. And he's got a real scientific approach. He loves the data. And really nice to see him recognise recently as a finalist at the Australian Track and Field Awards. Hey, around the same time when I first meet you, there's a beautiful, strong, confident young lady by your side. It's clear you're punching well above your weight. Tell us about your childhood sweetheart. Yeah, I've been married um, I've been married to Kel now for 10 years, so we just celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. But um, we've been together for uh, coming up 16 years um, so she's been with me since I was 17 um, and yeah, she's incredible. You know, she was there through my whole journey basically um, as an athlete um, through everything. Having her there, always having her support, I wouldn't have been able to achieve what I achieved. So I'm very grateful to have her. She was an exceptional athlete in her own right. Um, she was a national medalist in the 400 hurdles and she's still a phenomenal athlete. Like um, her fitness is out of this world Whenever I do a training session with her, I'm always left in her wake. <laughs> and that was the case, you know, even when I was at the top of my game, 
if we were doing a training session that involved any sort of fitness, she would stay right with me. And um, I think um, she was a real source of inspiration for me as well in terms of her mental strength. And I guess that comes from being a 400 hurdler. You'd have to be nuts to, you know, to do that event. But uh, yeah, she, you know, her mindset and her attitude is um, so strong. And that was a bit of an inspiration for me as well. Yeah, just on high jump, at the time when you're coming through, have you got heroes? Because when I was younger, of course, obviously everyone knew about Dick Frosby, the Frosby flop. But also there was a, a Cuban who was phenomenal, who set the world record back in our day. Yeah, Javier Sotomayor is just a, an absolute freak. And um, I would watch that video on repeat weekly um, of him setting that world record, despite the quality. Uh, 245, it just seemed untouchable. And, you know, when, when you're talking to people about it and they think, yeah, that sounds pretty high, but when you point to a, <laughs> you know, a ceiling yeah, yeah. and say, you know, it's just under your ceiling height, it really puts it into perspective. But um, growing up for me, the real source of inspiration for me was a guy called Nick Moroni. And he was a, uh, a high jumper from, he, he was around Tamworth region, um, I think. But, uh, you know, he was a New South Wales athlete. At the time, he was probably, you know, early 30s. He was, I think he won nationals something like 12 to 14 times. He jumped over two metres 20 years in a row. And... He was just incredible. And he was really nice, really supportive. You know, as a junior athlete coming up, looking at him being the best that we've got in Australia, and he always had, always had the time to talk to you. He could remember your name. He was encouraging. You know, he was, he was a role model for me. I wasn't one as an athlete to look up to other athletes. I didn't really like putting people on a pedestal, but I, I did appreciate, you know, the efforts that he went to to, um, to inspire me as a youngster. And then was there... Tim Forsyth, and does he win an Olympic medal? Tim Forsyth won a bronze, yeah, and he, he was really unlucky. He, you know, he was in Sotomayor's era, so, um, and just that era was insane. We've rarely had one like that, but, um, yeah, he was an incredible high jumper, and I really did think, you know, he was the pinnacle as well, and um, I always looked at what he was doing, and, you know, he, he had the national record at 236, and I thought that was, you know, going to stand for a long, long time as well because I think he jumped that at, at 19 or 20 years old. I think he was 19 because it was a, a world-leading height for under-20 athletes for a while. But, um, yeah, he was, he was an incredible athlete. Yeah, it's probably a good question. Where is he now? Tim Forsyth. Hey, by the way, you're coming through at the same time as Brandon Stark who goes on to become an Olympian, and I guess you're targeting Rio and also Tokyo last year or in 2021. Yeah, Brandon, um, he was a few years younger than me, but um, he was a real rising star at that time as well. Um, And he was getting a lot of support as well. You know, he was based out of Sydney. He was um, linked in with N-Swiss at a real early age. And he came through at a time when Athletics Australia was really trying to support junior athletes. So um, him having a lot of support, it was like a a source of contention for me as well because I'd never really got a lot of support from... Um, Athletics Australia or Athletics New South Wales. I, I, I got support, but um, not in the sense that I felt like they had an interest in furthering my career. And that's despite you being the New South Wales Open champion? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they had their performance standards, which they were, were quite strict, you know, like they are now. But um, I guess with Brandon, he was in the right place at the right time. He had a lot of talent from a young age as well. So don't get me wrong. He deserved that that support. But it became uh, a challenge for me that, 
you know, I would always want to beat him because, um, you know, I wouldn't say the golden child, but I look, I made him the golden child in my head because that was my motivation. I wanted to beat him. And so that was, um, you know, when he was achieving well and when I came up against him, that's what I wanted to do more than anything is to beat him to prove that, you know, I was still worthy of um, of receiving support as well. You probably open a can of worms here because if you look at some of the governing bodies, they almost back a couple of horses instead of throwing their arms around every young athlete that's got talent and saying, hey, we're with you every step of the way. What can we do? It, it, and that's how it felt, I think, for me. And, you know, I was very lucky at a young age to be able to travel and compete overseas. And so I had, you know, a lot of friends that were very good athletes in multiple countries. You know, um, I had very successful athletes that have represented at a senior level at the Olympics or world champs or Commonwealth Games from England, um, from Sweden, um, from Finland. And um, talking to them and seeing the support they got as junior athletes, they were gobsmacked that I wasn't getting the same support because, you know, they were, had friends, you know, that were probably five to ten centimetres lower than me at the same age um, that were getting far more support in their country. So when you see an athlete getting the support you want in your own country, it does leave a bit of a sour taste, I guess, and that's, that's why I had that motivation. But, yeah, historically I think there has been that, you know, put all your eggs in one basket. You know, Sally Pearson is a prime example, Danny Samuels. And, you know, justifiably so. They're exceptional athletes and they proved their weight on the international scale. And so is Brandon, by all means. But um, it, it just, you know, it leaves you to think, what if everyone got the support that they got? What athletes could we have seen? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I dare say now you'd, uh, you'd be embraced by New South Wales Institute of Sport and also Track and Field Australia? If I was an athlete coming up now, definitely there's there's a lot more support and and that was just a you know it was a common theme I think you know when I was when I was 17 years old they introduced the under 17s national development squads when I was 19 they they introduced the under 19s development so I was always that one year too late for these these new initiatives that they were bringing in and it was just a you know it was just bad luck yeah if you speak to Matt Horsnell your trajectory and he maps all of this out so. As a young man, you're already into the 220s. Surely you're going to be jumping 10 centimetres higher a decade later. Did you ever step through that with Matt, what your potential was? We spoke about it from a young age. I jumped two metres as a 15-year-old. And, you know, at that time, the, the Olympic champion was a guy called Stefan Holm. And, um, you know, he's, I think, got the record for jumping the highest height above his head, 53 centimetres. But... When I looked back at his career at 15 years old, Stefan Holm had jumped two metres. So, you know, at that, at that point in time, in my mind, I'm like, well, I, there's no reason I can't be at his level, um, you know, when I'm in my early 30s. So the belief was always there. And, yeah, Matt and I always had that conversation. You know, he's, he's very much of the opinion that um, you don't want to try and rush things as well. He's always about, you know incremental years you, your peak as an athlete is not to your 26 27 28 and he's like there's no rush to get to there if we build every year then we'll achieve what we need to achieve at the right time how old are you now i'm 33 i'm 34 <laughs> in a couple of months <laughs> around this time and i'm not entirely sure whether i've got this correct but you and kel start a family yeah so we we had our first daughter ella when i was 22 so we were quite young um, but it was something that we have both always wanted. We spoke about it 
And um, it was something that we were really excited to do. I was selfish as an athlete in that I, I made a lot of people sacrifice a lot of things for me, but at the same time, I didn't want to sacrifice having a family either. Um, so that was something that we were really excited about. It certainly made training as an athlete a, a little bit more difficult, um, but I had a great support behind me as well. Nothing better than having a young daughter, is there? No, that's right. And yeah, having, I've got three daughters now. Um, so yeah, I've always said that being, being a father of girls is exceptional. Just they have so much love to give. They're always wanting cuddles. They're always wanting to snuggle up with me on the lounge and watch a movie. So um, and I've been told they are the ones that look after you in old age. So, so Miller, the youngest? Miller is the youngest and then Ava is our middle child. Yeah. Suddenly, it looks like uh, everything's a fairy tale for you, for you and Kel, and looks like you're on target to represent Australia at the highest level, the Olympic Games, and then everything goes pear-shaped. So it might be hard to discuss. I dare say you've probably had some therapy around this. Is it still vivid? Yeah, it is. It's um, it's a really bizarre you know, situation in that I can still remember the exact moment that it all happened. You know, people say that when there's an accident or... You know, they, they say time slows down and that was definitely the case. Um, it felt like everything happened in slow motion. But at the same time, it happened so quickly as well. So it's a really bizarre sort of experience. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a really, um, it was just a normal afternoon. You know, I just, I was with the girls in the afternoon. I made dinner, it was sitting in the oven. And um, I went and picked up Kel from work that day. And, um, you know, when we got out of the car, parked the car at the top of our driveway which was you know it was at the top which was flat but it then went into a bit of a steep hill down towards the house and um I got out and went and unlocked the front door to to check on dinner and um my eldest Ella followed me down Ava our middle child was still quite young she was in a baby seat so Kel was getting her out of the car and I think when Kel hopped in the car to unbuckle her it just must have rocked the car enough and it started to move down our hill um, so it started to move quite slowly and so she's you know got a bit upset a bit worried and jumped out and then she screamed out to me Chris help the car um, so at that point in time I was at the front door and I've turned around and seen the car starting to sort of move down this hill so then I've run to try and help as I've gotten sort of to the bottom of the, the driveway I've seen that the car's you know, it's it's coming down the hill by now and there's no way we can stop it. And I've gone to move out of the way. And, you know, right next to me, Ella had followed me as well. So she'd run as, cause I've just, you know, run to the car. She's just followed me as well. Um, so she, you know, she was only four years old. So at that moment, I sort of just picked her up and went to sort of try and move her out of the way. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to throw her, you know what I mean? So like, I didn't want to just pick up my daughter and throw her. But by that stage, the car had already sort of come. And so, I sort of held her and the cars sort of hit me um, and then just, you know, flung us back onto our deck on the front of the house and then um, it's just gone straight over the top of me. I'd imagine it's almost like an explosion. The noise, like what were your senses at that moment? Yeah, it was quite terrifying. It was actually probably the scariest moment of my life that I can remember. It was just, um, it's a feeling I've never felt before. It was pure terror. And I think that was because I was trying to hold Ella out of the way. But I, you know, like you said, it's quite vivid. I still remember the feeling of the wheel running over my back 
um, and sort of like the, a bit of a crunch and then sort of just getting flung around like a rag doll. And, you know, the aftermath, it was, it was quite loud, you know, cause it crashed into the house, the car. And then, um, after it was just quiet and, you know, Kel was on the other side of the car. So she had no idea what had happened. She didn't see, um, me get hit. She just saw like, you know, she's called out and seen the car go down into the house. And so then she's, you know, come around the other side and she's seen me under the car and, you know, figured out what's happened and just screamed out like, oh my God. And I've just, you know, I've just said, you need to call an ambulance like straight away. I knew, I knew it was bad. I knew my back was broken. Like I could feel just this um, really intense sort of constricting pain um, in my lower back. Um, and, I, you know, obviously feeling the, the tire run over me over that section, I knew, um, I was like, this isn't good. <laughs> you're answering a lot of my questions. So you're still conscious and you're also self-diagnosing. Yeah, yeah. So I was still conscious the whole time. Like I remember it all quite vividly. Um, and um, yeah, like I said, I just knew I knew straight away that that this wasn't a problem that we could solve ourselves. You know? So do you see chaos happening around you from that moment once Kelly starts screaming? Yeah, I I just I I do remember it because I remember seeing the panic on her face, and I remember thinking I need to stay calm here because I don't want anyone to panic and. Unfortunately for Ella, she she actually had the, the one of the car wheels resting on her foot. So she was stuck under the tire and it was just on top of sort of like her toes. Um, and she was up against sort of, uh, you know, one of the posts of um, out the front of our deck. And then I couldn't move at all because the car had landed on my leg. Um, so my foot uh, had the, the car sitting on it and it was in between a toy car you know, like the, the your kids, you know, roll around in sort of like the Flintstones cars that the kids have. Um, so it was just trapped between there. So I couldn't move. Um, and then she was there. So, um, yeah, I was just trying to stay calm. Um, a couple of neighbours heard the noise and came running from all over the place. And, um, you know, they were like, oh, geez, like, what do we do here? And I said, you just need to lift the car up and get my daughter out. So, um, so you're more concerned at that point for Ella. And is there a concern that, the house could collapse. I was, yeah, I was definitely more concerned about Ella. I just wanted, like, I was trying to, like I said, I was trying to stay calm because I didn't want her to, to get upset. She was a little bit upset. So I was just trying to calm Ella down. I was, you know, just saying to Kel, um, don't worry about me, just call an ambulance. So she was on the phone to emergency services. Um, and then I was just saying to the neighbours, lift the car up. I don't care how you do it. Lift it up and get it off, off my daughter. So they all lifted it up and were able to get her out. But I couldn't get it off me it luckily didn't crash too hard the handbrake on the car was still on and my neighbor was checking at the time because i thought that i'd stuffed up and, and left it down but um so the car didn't roll with a huge amount of speed so luckily it didn't go through the house it stopped when it hit the house and that's lucky for me as well because um the position i was in under the car was you know a distance of less than a meter between me and the and the back wheel and my head was exactly in line with the back wheel of the car so I remember lying there thinking if that house didn't stop that car I would have popped my head under that wheel oh. and um yeah it was it was um a bit of a sobering experience because I was under that car for I think an hour and a half so there was a lot of um I guess reflection time to think under there and it was bloody painful it was a form of meditation almost so there was a, to a lot of time to think it was actually a pretty traumatic day 
for the first responders outside of Kel and outside of the neighbours. And there's a real personal aspect here as well, isn't there? Was your dad one of the first on the scene? Yeah. So, yeah, my dad, he, yeah, he wasn't working at the time, but they were only living about five minutes away. Um, so I think after Kel got off the phone to emergency services, she rung my parents and I don't know how they got there so quick, but um, I've been told that uh, I don't think the the road rules applied <laughs> to my dad at that time because he was there really quick. Um, and they were amazing because they, you know, they took the girls and they were trying to calm them down and they were trying to sort of calm Kel down because it was a bit of a lengthy process with the emergency services that were on scene to try and figure out how to safely raise the car and get me out from under it. I think they realised the severity of the accident more than I did at that time. Um, I was of the opinion, just get my foot out. I was just saying to them, just get my foot out and I'll, I'll get out. You know, because the first thing I did when the, when the car came to a stop is I, I moved my feet and I thought, okay, because, okay. you know, feeling the wheel go over your back is, is just such a terrifying experience that I was terrified that, you know, I wouldn't be able to move my legs. So in that first, you know, three seconds, you know, I moved my feet and I thought, okay, I can move my legs. I'm not paralyzed here. So I'm okay. You know, I thought everything was fine. Um, just get me out from the car. I'll be right. Yeah, that's the Aussie way. She'll be right, mate. What about because it's internal organs, have they spoken to you since about, was there a fear that like you're in real danger of not surviving this? I don't think they, they ever really communicated that to me too much. Um, like I said, I was, you know, I was in a headspace where I was like, I've just got to try and mask this out and get in a, in a mindset right now that I'm not thinking about this too much because it was, it was really painful. Like it was a bloody heavy car sitting on my leg. So it was, yeah, like I said, I sort of went into a, a form of meditation just trying to block out everything else. Um, and so I wasn't really paying too much attention other than just trying to ignore the pain. Um, mm. When they got the car up, I actually grabbed with my hands into the grooves of the deck and, and sort of pulled myself, because they were trying to figure out how to pull me out. I sort of just pulled <laughs> myself along. They were like, don't move, don't move. They, they were aware that there was probably serious injuries, um, especially when I was, you know, telling them like, oh, my back hurts here. And when they did the, you know, the touches, it was quite painful. So they knew that there was a broken back. But when they, when they pulled me out, they rolled me over. And when they rolled me over, I had, you know, the, the brace and everything on. They'd cut my clothes off by then um, and I only had underpants on and there was a bit of blood coming out because I'd fractured my pelvis and in the process it sheared my urethra. So there was internal bleeding. And um, once they saw that, I sensed a bit of, not panic, but a lot more seriousness in that instance. I thought I'd just urinated myself. I thought I peed myself. <laughs> And so when they said, oh, where'd this blood come from? I was a bit relieved, not realising, obviously, what, what was happening. Do you want to name names? Who's a hero in that moment? Who's running point on the operation? I can't. I got their names at the time, but I can't remember their names now. There was an intensive care paramedic that was there that really took control. And um, the, some of the care flight operators um, that flew me down came and saw me in the hospital after that. And that was something that really stuck with me and made me really appreciative as well. But um, I guess at that time I was, you know, by that stage they'd pumped some morphine into me as well. So um, everything was a bit of a dream. When do you realise that Ella's okay? I thought she was generally okay. When they got the car out from underneath her, she, 
she was great. Like she stopped crying and, you know, she was such a trooper. She was so brave. And they checked her over and, you know, everyone kept reassuring me, the paramedics, you know, I kept asking, how's Ella? What's going on now? Like, she's fine. Don't worry about her. So I think that she was okay. Um, Kel went with Ella to the hospital because I got obviously flown down in a, in a helicopter to the Royal North Shore. So she was in contact with my mum who made her way down to the hospital to be with me. Um, so they, you know, they kept in constant contact and told me she just suffered a bit of a bruised foot. She didn't suffer any breaks at all. When she got sort of uh, whiplashed in the accident, she got a big bruise on her neck, like a massive bruise, but that was, that was about it for her. So she was really lucky. And that is where we leave part one with Chris Dodd. Just an amazing story. And even all these years later, you can't help but think his actions in that moment of chaos definitely saved Ella. And so lucky that eventually he's able to walk away after a lengthy stay in hospital. And that's where we pick up in episode two. The extent of his injuries, the road to recovery, and the realisation that the Olympic dream is over. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and don't forget, if you know someone worth their weight in gold, we want to hear about it. You can leave a comment via the website or simply send a direct message and maybe one of your friends or family could be on the podcast in the future. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you soon on Worth Their Weight in Gold.